Welcome to Bloodbath, a true crime podcast. I'm Ashley. And I'm Jamie. Wait, Ash, did you just say true crime? Not rue crime, true crime. <laughs> so if I'm easily creeped out or offended by mass murder or men murdering women and white supremacy, then this probably isn't the podcast for me. Ooh, 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 those are some topics, my love. Those are. <laughs> you can try it out. Try it out. Just try it out. Yeah, try it. you like it. Who knows? Consider that Not that you're, you're into it, but like... I just want to say, like, nobody's into nobody's white supremacy. Into and if you are into white supremacy, you are a nobody. You're a nobody. So nobody is into white supremacy. There Don't you go. fucking do it. Anyway. <laughs> Consider this your blanket trigger warning. You're about to listen to a real true crime podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get podcasts. It's time for the show. every time every that's a time. song right it is it is <laughs> i don't even know the song it's, it's i will survive I, I will survive oh i do know that song yeah he said as long I, I as i know how to love i know i'll stay alive copyrighted yeah. all right whatever that's it i wouldn't sing more than 10 seconds we're fine <laughs> okay so cheese <laughs> that was a it. big cheese <laughs> That was a cheddar wheel. <laughs> the cheddar. Forgive us the cheddar. What's the true crime cheddar this week? It is Richard Speck. Wow. Who I feel like a few people know. I didn't know. But I feel like a lot of people know because he's a serial killer. Mm-hmm. So let's dive into him. Ew. Ew. <laughs> so <laughs> Richard Benjamin Speck was born in a small city in Monmouth, Illinois on December 6, 1941. His wait, parents were... wait, wait, wait. December 6th, 1941? Yes. As in the day before December 7th, 1941? The day, yes. Is that yours? No, December 7th, 1941 is the day that uh, they bombed Pearl Harbor. Oh, wow. Oh, so he was just out here being born right before that happened. Yeah. <laughs> like he had a choice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure after what he's done... He would have been swallowed if they had the choice. <laughs> so, or maybe not, because his parents are very religious. Okay. I don't know if they're into that. They don't even drink alcohol. Like, yeah, they, they probably very religious. do not guzzle cum. So, um, they might though, because like they be fucking. He is oh. seven of eight kids, so like there might be some type of foreplay. <laughs> so our cases have that in common. There's just a ton of kids. Oh God. Yeah. So. When Richard was six in 1947, his dad died of a heart attack at the age of 53, which is really young. His mom remarried about three years later after the death of her husband, and his new stepdad was the complete opposite of Richard's dad. He was a traveling traveling salesman. A traveling salesman. A traveling salesman. (laughs) I don't know what happened. (laughs) With a long criminal record who would drink and verbally abuse Richard. Wait, I thought you said they didn't drink. He would drink. So oh. new new daddy. New, new daddy. stepdaddy. Oh, oh, that's right. The other guy died. Sorry. Complete opposite. Got no, it. you're good. You're good. We're following. We're following. <laughs> no stupid questions. <laughs> <laughs> so they moved to Dallas, Texas, and 
from there, they would just kind of move from house to house in more of the poorer neighborhoods. Richard did not do well in school, and he refused to wear the glasses that he needed to literally see. He had social anxiety as well and would not speak in school whatsoever. After repeating the eighth grade, he dropped out of high school within the second semester. And this was probably due to him picking up his stepfather's habits of drinking. Mm. He would actually start drinking at the age of 12. And by 15, he was getting drunk almost every single day. Sounds like my dad. His first arrest in 1955 at the age of 13 for trespassing was followed by dozens of other arrests for misdemeanors over the next eight years. He, too, is probably on first name basis. <laughs> this last week's case. <laughs> like, hey, yo, send me Mike. Send me. I need Mike. <laughs> no, not that Mike. The other one. <laughs> From 1960 to 1963, Speck worked as a laborer for the 7-Up Bottle Company. Mm. Hmm. Something we know. And this was in Dallas. So October 1961, while at the Texas State Fair, Richard met 15-year-old Shirley Annette Malone. They were dating for about three weeks, and his strong was sperm. Wait, what? What? <laughs> <laughs> what did you just say? His strong was, was sperm. sperm. His I sperm mean... was strong, just like his parents, is what I meant to say. Wow. Within three weeks, she was pregnant. Damn. I had an actual stroke there. So- just like every other old-timing, I feel like, 1950s era, if you get somebody knocked up, you get married. It's not a reason to get married, y'all. Just saying. It's 2022. Yeah. Don't do it. <laughs> so they get married January 19th, 1962, and move in with his older sister and her husband. Shirley lived in fear, though, as Richard would demand sex four to five times a day, and if she didn't get it, he would rape her. Oh, my God. He ended up having a daughter, Robbie Lynn Speck, who was born on July 5th, 1962, while Rich was serving a 22-day jail sentence for disturbing the peace after a drunken... Melly? After a drunken adventure. Okay. <laughs> In Texas. <laughs> Melee? In July 1963. Melee? M-E-L-E-E? Yeah, Melee. Oh, that's why it's clicked. Oh, I remember. I remember doing the notes for that part. And it said it said that. And I was like, I looked up the word. It said, like, a bustle or something. A bustle? A, a trussle? A brothel. A no, wait. Uh, like the... What is the other word? It had another word for it. Because then I had to look up that word. And then it was, like, fighting. And then I was like, I'm going to keep it. So a I can... rumble? <laughs> I fucking know what I'm looking for. There's so okay. many words for fight. It's fine. Well, melee is not the one in my head, but I wanted to try it out, and she did not succeed. Proud of you for trying. <laughs> did I, though? <laughs> so in July 1963, Richard had forged and cashed a co-worker's $44 check. That's it? And also, well, that makes more money back then. <laughs> I don't know what, but it does. And... The same day that he forged this check, he robbed a grocery store for cigarettes, beer, and $3 in cash. Okay? He's 21. He was oh. sentenced to serve three years in prison after being convicted of forgery and burglary. 
He was paroled in 1965 after serving 16 months. This release lasted a week. Of course. He was arrested on January 9th, 1965, after he attacked a woman in the parking lot of the apartment buildings next to him, wielding a 17-inch carving knife. Oh, my God. But bled when the woman screamed. <laughs> so if she scared him? <laughs> Imagine you got a 17-inch knife, and she screams, and you're like, ah, and you run away. I'm running away. I mean, usually that's, like, why you have the little keychains that make the really loud noises. So if something happens, you do the loud noise, and then they're like, and they hopefully run away. So the police were there in minutes and found him a couple blocks away. Didn't get very far. Mm-hmm. Convicted of aggravated assault, given a 16-month sentence to run concurrently with a parole violation sentence, and returned to prison in Huntsville. However, due to an error, he was released just six months later upon the completion of his parole violation sentence on July 2nd, 1965. While out, he got a job with Patterson Meat Company. He would not be fired for the six car accidents that he caused in the company's trucks. <laughs> no, no. Just because he no-called, no-showed. Oh, my the God. The other ones weren't any red flags. January of 1966, Malone, his, his wife, who had been separated from Richards, filed for divorce. No longer his wife. <laughs> While staying at a friend's house that same month, he stabbed a man with a knife in a, you guessed it, a knife fight. Good. He brought a knife to they a knife fight. They were having a knife fight. <laughs> what in the fuck? Like, they were together having a knife fight. It's not funny, but it's kind of funny. It's stupid. It's so stupid. Like, it's calm childish. down. Just bring down the testosterone a little bit. Just a tiny bit. To stop. Knife. No! <laughs> no! So, for this, he was charged with aggravated assault, but a defense attorney hired by his mother got his charge reduced to disturbing the peace. It must have been because it was, like, a consensual (laughs) knife fight, maybe? I don't know. So, they were just like, okay, so, disturbing the peace. And he was fined $10, which I do have the math for that one. That's $84 today. It's quite a bit of money. Okay? And he got out of jail. So that $44 would have been about $1,200 then, right? Yeah. If you're, yeah, math, if you're mathing that correctly. <laughs> I'm pretty bad at math, so. Are you mathing it right now? Maybe. <laughs> I'm w- very off. Way off. It would have been like $500. Oh, it would have been like $1,200. <laughs> I like the 1200 more, too. It's okay. <laughs> So, March 5th, 1966, he bought a car and celebrated by robbing a grocery store, stealing 70 cartons of cigarettes, and then turned his car, like the trunk of his car, into a little store and sold them in his trunk, sitting in the parking lot of the store that he stole them from. Oh my god. It's not bright. No, he's not. He abandoned the car, but the police put out a warrant for him, and he was caught on March 8th. So this is absolutely ridiculous. But this is his 42nd arrest. 42nd? 42nd. Throw him away. Throw him away? Throw him away. Just throw him away. You're done. You're done. You're out. Jesus, put him on an island where nobody else is. Give him food. Give him water. Just... (laughs) 
throw them away. If you throw if your away. jails are too crowded, I'm sure there's an island somewhere. <laughs> Put him on a fucking rowboat in the middle <laughs> of the row ocean. Away. Goodbye. No, no, he's not allowed to have a rowboat because then he can rowboat to civilization and then just get arrested for the forty third time. Although he's still going to. Okay. So. Oh my god. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> March 9th, 1966, his sister drove him to the bus stop, hopefully to go to an island, but he did not. He boarded it, and he headed to Chicago to live with another sister. So, Mm. he moves in with his sister, Martha Thornton, and her family for a few days. He then returns to Monmouth getting a job with his brother as a carpenter. One day, he found out Shirley, his ex-wife, has remarried and became enraged. Okay. He he doesn't really do anything that we know of at this moment, but he is upset. He moved to downtown uh, Monmouth, living in the Christie Motel, and spent all of his time at the taverns and bars. He was arrested after a man informed the police that he pulled out a knife on him. Not shockingly. A knife! Then April 3rd, a knife. <laughs> then April 3rd, 65-year-old resident of Monmouth returned home at 1 a.m. to find a burglar in her house... Holding a knife. He was six foot tall, a white man who was very polite. A, a white, white man. man. No. <laughs> she said he was very polite and spoke very softly with a southern drawl. Molasses. Molasses. <laughs> the man blindfolded her, tied her up, raped her, ransacked her house, and stole $2.50 that she had earned from babysitting bro that's like 16 dollars that's like 16 (laughs) dollars a week later mary Catherine pierce a 32 year old barmaid Mm -hmm. i'm thinking that means like like hostess almost they work at the bar yeah bar yeah uh just working at her brother-in-law's tavern it's called frank's place I really like that name, and I don't know why. I think it's just cute. Frank's just like, I want a tavern, and I'm going to call it Frank's Place. Hell yeah. That's adorable. So, working in downtown Monmouth the, was, the last, was the last time she was seen. Leaving the tavern at 12.20 a.m. She was reported missing on April 13th, and her body was found that day in an empty bog house behind the tavern. Mm-hmm. She had died from a blow to her abdomen that ruptured her liver. What the fuck? Mm-hmm. And not surprisingly, somebody that we know of frequented the Frank's place. And of Mr. course Stick. it would be Richard. Mm-hmm. And the house that she was found in, Richard helped build. Congratulations. You played yourself. The dots are connecting. The dots are very much connecting. The red string is going all over, and it's all connecting to one person. So the police briefly question Richard about Pierce's death when he showed up to collect his final carpentry paycheck on April 15th. And they asked him to stay in town for further questioning. When police show up at the Christie Hotel on April 19th to continue speaking with Richard, they discovered he had left the hotel a few hours later. Earlier. <laughs> carrying like, a, a suitcase. <laughs> sorry. Earlier. Carrying his suitcase and saying he was just going to the laundromat. So mm. he told the front desk. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, no. He was leaving town. Yeah. So when they searched his home, they found some of Virgil Harris, the 65-year-old lady that he raped and stole the $2.50 from. They found her jewelry that she had reported missing. Oh. They also found other items that had been reported missing from other local burglaries that they had not connected him to yet. Mm. So he runs to Chicago. Because of course he does. He's going to go back to his sister, go back to family, go back to somewhere that he knows. Uh-huh. Living on the second floor apartment of 3966 North Avondale Avenue in the old Irvine Park neighborhood on the northwest side of Chicago, he told them an unbelievable story about having to leave Monmouth. Monmouth. I hate that city mm-hmm. name. <laughs> <laughs> After refusing to sell narcotics to a crime syndicate. Syndicate, yeah. That was the story of why he had to leave so abruptly and oh, needed a place to stay. Right, right, right. His sister's husband, Gene, was in the Navy, and he felt that he needed to help his brother-in-law out, so he suggested they talk to the Coast Guard about getting a job as an apprentice seaman. Oh, my God. He's like, here, let me recruit you. (laughs) Exactly. He's like, you're down on your luck, and those are the people we look for. (laughs) (laughs) Ouch. You're right. (laughs) I wouldn't have said it if you weren't on the other side of this. So his sister's uh, husband has him apply for the application, which requires fingerprinting and his photograph to be taken. Yeah, no shit. He also has to have, yeah, he also has a physical examination by a doctor. Uh Uh-huh. I don't know the fuck how, but he was accepted. Oh, my God. Even with his 40-plus arrests, he was accepted and found work immediately. He was out on his first voyage when it was cut short from him getting an appendicitis. Oh, my God. The odds. On May 3rd, he was evacuated by the Coast Guard helicopter and taken to St. Joseph's Hospital in Hancock, Michigan, where they performed emergency surgery. When discharged, he went back to live with his sister and to heal up. And then he went back to work, but then got drunk in a fight with a boat officer and was kicked off back to shore. What an idiot. I know. Why are you always fighting people? Why are you always stressing me out? (laughs) Stop. You're stressing me out. Like, by July 11th, Richard was kind of overstaying his welcome at his sister's house now. And he wasn't showing any promises of being a um, civilized human being. Yeah. Or holding down a job. (laughs) 43 fucking arrests at this point. No. Right? No. So the next day, he went to his brother-in-law's hiring hall and got a work opportunity that was about 30 minutes away. Once there, he found out that the position had been filled. So he's pissed the fuck off. He just drove 30 minutes to go do this, and it's filled. He didn't have enough money for a room, so he went to a house that he was helping build and slept there. The next day, he went back to the hiring hall and told them how pissed off he was and that he went to this job that was already filled. He talked to the sister and her husband when they came down to visit him as well. She gave him $25, and he went back to the hall waiting for a job, but soon grew impatient and left to drink with the $25 instead. Ah, classic. Drink it away. Right? So he spent the rest of the day drinking until he saw 53-year-old Ella Hooper. He held her at knife point and took her back to his room that he had gotten in the shipyard. From the $25 that his sister gave him. Mm-hmm. They didn't drink all of it away, I guess. He raped her and stole her gun. He released her and then left his room a little after 10.20 p.m. Dressed in all black, holding a knife, because it's Richard. 
he walked about mile and a half where he and his sister and her husband met up at where he remembers seeing across the way that some local nurses were staying in a, to- in a townhouse. Oh, my God. So he's paying attention to his surroundings. Yeah. July 13th, 1966, he broke into the townhouse through the window and slipped into the bedrooms of the nurses. He knocked on 23-year-old exchange student nurse Corazon Amareo door and at gunpoint herded her and her fellow exchange students from the Philippines uh, Marlita Gurgula, 20, she's 23 years old, 23-year-old Valentina Passion, and he herds them into a room, and then he goes into the next room and gets the American students out, uh, Patricia Mutsasek, Mutsasek, 20 years old, 20-year-old Pamela Welkening, and 24-year-old Nina Jo Schmel, and they were all sleeping, and they're being woken up to a fucking gun in their face and herded into a different room. He then kept them all in the room for hours. But then one by one, he would take the girls into another room alone, stab them, and strangle them to death. Oh, my God. At one point, when Richard had his back to the group, Corazon rolled under a nearby bed in the room and hid. Unfortunately, though, two more students, two more nurse students who also lived in the townhouse, returned home while this is happening. Oh, my God. 21-year-old Susan Ferris walked to her room, and Richard caught up to her and stabbed her to death. He did the same to 20-year-old Mary Ann Jordan. 22-year-old Gloria Jean Davey was then dropped off by her boyfriend late that night. Gloria came into the house, and he got a hold of her. He raped her and sexually brutalized her and then strangled her to death. She's the only one that he raped, though. With the extra girls coming home and all the chaos ensuing around, it's likely that he just forgot that Corazon was even there. She stayed hidden under the bed until 6 a.m. when she finally worked up the courage to jump out and flee. So she jumps out of the nearest window and she's screaming, They are all dead. My friends are dead. Oh my God, I'm the only one alive. Screaming. Mm, That poor girl. And this is a college area, you know, like, oh, my God. Like, the, the, the people who heard that are now victims, too. They, mm-hmm. they was witnessed this, you know? Coruscant will later say, my friends are all dead. Oh, God, I'm the only one alive. And that none of her friends screamed as they were being led from the room. But she later heard their muffled cries. She informed the police on what he looked like and that he had a tattoo that said, born to raise hell. Congratulations. You played yourself again. (laughs) Right? Like, literally, that's why I'm convinced that people with tattoos are actually really good people. Because why are people with indicating very prominent, very look-at-me tattoos going to go and do something stupid? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I get the whole basis of it where back in the day it was more of a prison thing. But not anymore. People are getting very bright, colorful, look-at-me tattoos. They're not going to go down the street and kill Betty next. Like, stop. <laughs> <laughs> not if they don't want to spend the rest of their life in prison. Exactly. So the crime scene was suspected, and they found fingerprints, of course. <laughs> and, of course, he had just recently gotten that job where he had to have his fingerprints taken. Huh. Even though he was arrested 42 times before that, I still, he probably has his fingerprints taken. I still like the odds of that, how that lined up. Mm-hmm. 
A sketch of Richard was sent out, and two days after the murders, a man named Claude Lunsford identified him as they had been out drinking together. But the police did not look into this. Even though there was records that Claude reported this, they did not look into this. Oh, my God. Then Richard tried to kill himself. He was rushed to the hospital where Dr. Leroy Smith, a 25-year-old surgical resident, physician, noticed his tattoo. So as soon as he does, he calls the police, informs them that he thinks he has Richard and that he's expected to survive. So they come and he's doing the surgery, whatever. And obviously he survives and he's arrested. A panel of three physicians suggested by the defense and three physicians selected by the prosecution, consisting of five psychiatrists and one general surgeon, were called on by the judge. The panel's confidential report, Dean Richard Speck, competent to stand trial and concluded he had not been insane at the time of the murders good while waiting for trial he went to twice weekly sessions with part-time cook county jail psychiatrist dr marvin zipperin zipperin <laughs> zipperin <laughs> dr zipperin had a summary of richard saying he suffered from depression anxiety guilt and shame that he spoke and had deep love for his family but that he had an obsessive compulsive personality and a, quote, Madonna prostitute attitude towards women. So this outdated term, Madonna prostitute, is the inability to maintain sexual arousal with a committed loving relationship. First identified by Sigmund Freud under the rubric of um, psychic impotence. Rubic? Oh my god. It's Sigmund Freud and (laughs) impotence. What did I say? Impotence. It's impotence. (laughs) Sigmund Freud. Very, very famous psychologist. Yes, yes. That guy. The psychology complex is said to develop in men who see women as either saintly Madonnas or debased, quote, prostitutes. We don't use that word anymore. And that's that's why we are trying to get rid of the word virgin altogether because it's like virginity oh, really? is over really like it literally puts this thing in their mind of like if she's a virgin then she's like the madonna clear and if she's and, not yeah. then she's dirty and it's like no literally not that but okay i will sign all the petitions to get rid of virginity <laughs> um men with this complex desire a sexual partner who has been degraded quotes i'm reading this from the mm-hmm. definition people yeah. okay so quote the whore while they cannot desire their reciprocated partner the madonna so, exactly what you just said. He wrote, where such men love, they have no desire. And where they desire, they cannot love. That's it's so backwards. That's crazy. Right? So, Richard later claimed he had no recollection of the murders, but he had confessed to Dr. Leroy Smith at the Cook County Hospital, his surgeon, exactly what he did. He, he told them. However, he was in the process of being sedated. So, they couldn't use that to testify. Mm. I don't know. I know, right? And then the trial began on April 3rd, 1967 in Illinois, three hours southwest of Chicago. But there was a gag order on the press. There, surviving student, Nurse Corazon, was asked if she could identify the killer of her friends and fellow nurses. Being the badass that she is, she stood up from her seat, walked up like stood up from her seat from the witness box walked directly in front of richard speck and pointed her finger at him barely inches away from touching him and oh said this is the man oh. i know Oof. 
On April 15, 1978, after 49 minutes of deliberation, the jury found Speck guilty and recommended the death penalty. It takes 40 minutes to do the paperwork. For- <laughs> I know, right? On June 5th, Judge Herbert, 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 <laughs> sentenced Speck to die in the electric chair, but granted an immediate stay pending automatic appeal, which is... Uh, a state pending appeal may be granted by the trial court or the Supreme Court in a case involving important constitutional issues involving the press. The Illinois Supreme Court subsequently upheld his conviction and death sentence on November 2nd. Oh, my God. I'm losing it. November 22nd, 1968. But then on June 28th, 1971, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld Speck's conviction but reversed his death sentence because more than 250 potential jurors were unconstitutionally excluded from his jury because of their con- what is it conscientious uh, objection of religious of religious beliefs against capital punishment. Yeah, so uh, a conscientious objector is someone who does not believe in killing someone like at all. So you can be a conscientious objector to the war, or you can do it to the death penalty. Same thing, but based on religious, sure, yeah, yeah. Wow. So the case was. Remanded back to the Illinois Supreme Court for resentencing. Mm. It's a bunch of waste of fucking time and tax dollars. Yeah. On June 29, 1972, the U.S. Supreme Court declared the death penalty unconstitutional, so the Illinois Supreme Court's only option was to order Speck resentenced to prison by original Cook County Court. Finally, on November 21, 1972, Judge Richard Fitzgerald resentenced Richard to 400 to 1,200 years in prison. Eight consecutive sentences of 50 to 150 years. He was denied parole in seven minutes on his first parole hearing on September 15, 1976. Then again at all his hearings in 1977, 78, 81, 84, 87, and 1990. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. While incarcerated at the Stateville Correctional Center in Crest Hill, Illinois, Richard was given the nickname Birdman after the film Birdman of Alcatraz because he kept a pair of sparrows that felt that flew into his cell. He was described as a loner and collected stamps. The warden described him as a big nothing doing time. Yikes. <laughs> Love it. So late night, December 4th, 1991, Speck was transported from Stateville Correctional Center to Silver Cross Hospital in Juliet, Illinois, after completing a severe chest pains. Early morning, December 5th, 1991, Richard Speck died of a heart attack just a day short of his 50th birthday. Mm. The doctor said he had an enlarged heart, emphysema, and clogged arteries, which was likely caused, which is what likely caused the heart attack. Lastly, Richard's sister feared that if he had a labeled gravesite, that it would be desecrated. Mm-hmm. So he was cremated and his ashes were scattered in a secret location and that area is probably haunted now. So, Oh, I bet. There's Richard Speck. You know, I wanted to make this joke earlier and I decided to wait till the end. His name's Dick Speck. Dick Speck. He's, got, yeah. he's probably got, you know, tiny dick. Yeah, that's a little, little Speck dick. Speck dick, <laughs> you know? Oh, that was awful. Thanks. The beginning of it's kind of comical and then right up until that part where it's no longer comical, you know? Yeah. Yeah, what is it's that? It's just like, really? You know, this is just like, it, he's given me the Bundy vibes. He's given me, you know, the... Wannabe. Wannabe, yeah. He's not quite, because Bundy didn't really get arrested before. No, no. This guy's, like, the nurse, the nursing nurses, that's what I'm getting. It's just like, and taking them off one by one, and it's just like, that's fucking scary. 
I know. That and is... the fact that she just oh. hid under the bed and then she just like waited there. What do you do? You oh know? my god. What, what do can you do? Insane. It's so And crazy. to a degree, she's like the the psychological toll that would hold on you that he just kind of forgot about you because other girls came home. This poor girl. She's probably got survivor guilt like no other. But yeah. Standing up to him and being like this fucking guy. Him. Yeah. She did the damn thing. Yeah. Yeah. Go her. Just all right. You got a creepy fact? I do. And it's it's hard to think about. Oh, there God. are about 40 super volcanoes around the world, and all of them are capable of claiming a billion lives each. Whoa. And we're about 24,000 years overdue for an eruption. Oh, okay. No, thank you. You're welcome. I will not be storing that fact into a <laughs> keeping file. Yeah. <laughs> that will be exiting now. <laughs> So, you know, just just keep that in mind or don't. <laughs> uh, no, I'm okay. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, be sure to uh, keep up with us on all our socials and rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get podcasts. Thanks so much for hanging out with us this week. And we will see you next Friday. Or hear from you? Yes. We will, you'll hear from us next Friday. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> but wait. There's more. Bye, 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 bye.